but as soon as you start trying to pull your your bit and your bottom hole assembly out, you've got essentially a piece of equipment that's the same size as the hole you just drilled, and you have to get it out of the hole. And um, by doing that, it's kind of like a snowplow, and you're pulling that cutting load with you. And if you didn't clean the hole up good enough, then uh, eventually it's going to pile up and it'll lock you in and get you stuck. Welcome to Energy Builders, a podcast about the geologists, engineers, roughnecks, entrepreneurs, and many more that are building in oil and gas. Hey, everybody, Adam Oxen here, and today I'm joined by my friend Cody Godsell. Cody is a petroleum engineer, and on today's episode, we discuss engineering duties in corporate versus engineering duties in small independent companies. We talk about decisions made on location versus decisions made from the office. We talk about rig sizes, monoboring, and more. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you'll have something to take away from today's episode. And with that being said, enjoy the show. I am a drilling engineer for Altoro Resources, um, the only drilling engineer at the company. The company's really small. We've got 13 or, well, 13 office employees and uh, five or six field employees that uh, kind of manage our, our assets on the production side. Um, prior to this, I was at Chesapeake for about eight years, and um, the whole time I was there, I was a drilling engineer as well. And Drilled in a bunch of different basins, started out in the Haynesville, and then did South Texas, and then Powder River, and then um, the Northeast drilling the, the Marcellus Shale. Um, so I've kind of been all over the place, but haven't seen the Permian, haven't spent much time there at all, uh, just gone to a couple events. But um, aside from that, uh, I am the Mid-Continent AED uh, Chapter President. And as of a month ago, also um, the AED National, sorry, let me back up. I was elected to be one of the directors for uh, National AED. That's cool. Trying to get involved what? in all that. Yeah, that's great. So how, are you guys, are you, how many rigs are you guys running right now? Are you running any rigs right now? I'm no, sorry, I don't we, know this. I feel like I should know this. <laughs> no, it's okay. There's a bunch, there's innumerable amount of uh, small operators like us in Oklahoma. So um, we are not running a rig right now. Uh, we kind of operate intermittently. Uh, we just drill uh, maybe a little less than 10 wells a year. Last year we drilled nine. A uh, year before that, I think it was seven or eight. And um, we really just pick up a rig when there's one available and it fits our lease timeline. Um, and knock out half of our wells and then come back and do the other half at the end of the year, kind of spread out that capital. So that's great. Yeah. No, I mean, we're rigs have been, I mean, you know, it's been, it's been impossible. We had a project fall apart uh, in third quarter of this year because we couldn't, you know, make timing work. Um, Cause similar, you know, we're smaller than you guys here at rocks and um, you know, we're drilling, anywhere from three to five wells a year and just trying to fit in between, you know, other people's drilling schedule or bring a, a rig out of the weeds. And then if you're bringing it out, is it, who's it going to go to next? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, so, um, 
let's talk about a little bit like um, what a drilling engineer does for for anyone in the industry that's not on the on the drilling side of things, or um, or maybe people outside of the oil and gas industry. What what what? And maybe even what does a drilling engineer do like at a small company where you're at presently, as opposed to like, you know, a publicly traded company like Chesapeake? What's what's those roles look like? Okay. Um, so overall, a drilling engineer's job is to make sure that the well is drilled in the correct spot and that you drill it as smooth as possible so that it's an easy well bore for completions and production to have for the rest of the whale's life, we see it for um, maybe a month of its lifetime, and then production has to deal with it for the next five to 10 or 20 years. Um, so sometimes drilling the fastest well isn't always the, the best thing. You want to drill the, the smoothest, most usable well bore. Um, and a drilling engineer helps facilitate that by um, organizing all the different vendors we use from um, mud companies for our drilling fluids, uh, directional companies to steer the well bore. And um, you gather all those companies up, make sure they're talking to each other and have a good plan in place with your drilling program. And um, once the rig's standing up in the air, you make sure they execute on that and they're doing it safely. Um, by the end of the well, you've hopefully learned a few things and you try to polish it up and repeat it again and hopefully improve on it little by little. So that's kind of the insides and are the long and short of it. Uh, at a company like Chesapeake, you, when I was there, there were probably on average 20 rigs running. Um, and we had probably about 20 drilling engineers. So you had a lot of, um, people to bounce ideas off of. You had more experienced engineers you could learn from. You had less experienced engineers that you would help train, um, and then they could help you out with some some directional planning or um, just some research on offset wells. And uh, you would also have an operations support center that can monitor your wells throughout the evening and call you if something's going disastrously wrong. Um, and you kind of all work together as a cohesive team and. Uh, it seemed to help drive performance because uh, somebody would be doing something and they'd be blowing the curve out of the water and you'd be like, Hey, how'd you do that? And you go sit in their office two doors down and talk to them about it. Um, and then you come to a, a company like El Toro and you're the only one steering the ship. Um, you kind of had to rely more on people in the industry and uh, friends in the industry at other small operators or at large operators and, try to share knowledge that way. And um, it leaves a lot more room for you to do what you want with the operation, but it also leaves a lot more room or a lot more responsibility on your shoulders. And if you aren't proactive, then things don't really improve. So, Right, right. So can you talk a little bit about like, and, and maybe speak to, I imagine your most busiest uh, when you guys are picking up a rig and running half your drilling yeah. program, but you've got the preparation phase, like you mentioned, coordinating all of that. Um, what does that look like? I mean, you're building the AFEs, the, the budgets. Are, are you, are, um, talk a little bit about that and then the vendor list and and then maybe 
I mean, are you out on location? Are you working from the office? Do you have a company man out there? And what's that? I guess that's two questions, the building, <laughs> building your AFE and all that. And then yeah, we'll start the actual, yeah, let's start there. And then we'll jump over to like, yeah. Yeah. So in my off season, I call it when the rig isn't running, <laughs> um, uh, as soon as operations end, I, I start digging through all those reports that we did and uh, try to iron out our lessons learned, like what went well this time and what do we want to improve on next time. Uh, put together little after action reports, um, mostly for my benefit, um, but they're out there uh, in case my boss or somebody else wants to check them out. Um, and then uh, the rest of the time I'm contacting vendors, getting updated pricing, making sure I have casing for my upcoming wells, making sure I have uh, a rig like uh, we talked about at the beginning of this call. Um, and really your operations are centered around when that rig is available for companies like us um, because they may, we may want to start drilling January 17th, but if I can't get a rig until February 28th, then that's when I'm starting. So um, that's what my off time looks like. Um, I guess also in that period, I'm taking those new estimates from companies uh, and um, my actuals that came in from the wells we just drilled and I'm updating my AFE. Um, for those that don't know, uh, AFE is authority for expenditure. So it's your best guess, your budget for the well. And um, you're just trying to make that as close as possible so that uh, all the accountants and the CFO know what to expect uh, for these wells coming up so they can budget the right number of wells with the capital that we have. And then uh, I guess as far as the second question goes, um, my supervision on location is typically just two company men, um, one day and one night. And uh, depending on how long our operation is, I'll either run that um, on a on a 2010 schedule where they're working 20 days on 10 days off um, because for a short period of time, that seems to work pretty well for them. Uh, we only ever operate for two or three months at a time. So they're, they're fine with that. If we were to go long-term, I would do two weeks on two weeks off and that'd just be kind of less stressful on everybody all around. Um, and then they report directly to me. Uh, there's no middleman like there might be at Chesapeake. Um, or Devon or wherever, uh, larger companies, they tend to have field superintendents because they're running multiple rigs. So they want to make sure that the two or three rigs that the superintendent is watching are all kind of performing up to par. He's the boots on the ground um, that is making the fast paced decision and then kind of involving the drilling engineer after the fact or during it. But um, for those quick decisions that need to be made, the superintendent's there. So then at a small company like El Toro, uh, we don't have those boots on the ground. So being the first call from the company man is, uh, it's just a different animal uh, coming from a big company down to a smaller one. Uh, but it's also, like I said before, you got more buy-in, you control the operation a little bit more. So it's nice. Um, and then is I the decision-making the quicker in that scenario too? Are you guys able to? Yeah, it is because my boss, he handles all the frack in the, in the uh, production. Um, he has an idea of what's good and what's bad. And like, I'll bounce ideas off of him. But for the most part, it's just, hey, 
you handle these operations, do what you need to do. I trust you. And, um, we'll talk about it after the fact. So it really just comes down to me and the company men on deciding what's the best course of action, uh, when things come up. So, and then gotcha. I, I go out, and- I go out to the field while we're drilling about every other month. Um, so at least two or three times while the rig is operating. And then when it's not operating, uh, I don't go to the field at all. Uh, if we're evaluating a new rig, then I will more than likely go check that rig out in person and before I sign the contract. So, Yeah, yeah. And what is what is the like the working relationship with your, are your company men, you know, are they, are they drilling engineers, they engineers, are they just guys that have worked their way up on the rig or do you guys can working with a consultant uh, that's an expert in that? And is it a bouncing ideas off of each other kind of a scenario or is, or is it like, here's the plan we stick to it and we don't deviate what's, and does the well throw you curveballs that make you, you know, have to get on your toes? What's, what's it yeah, look so, like? Um, we already had, I started working for El Toro a year and a half ago, and they already had a consulting firm in place that they were comfortable with and have worked with for four or five, six years, and they knew the operations. So uh, my MO, whenever I come into a new rig or a new company, <laughs> is uh, just kind of lead things as, as they are and see where things may need to be improved. And working with those guys, I quickly found out that they, they knew what they were talking about and there was no reason to displace them. Um, and as far as the mix goes, uh, I think two of the company men that I work with, they came up through the ranks on the rig and, um, they were, a, a, a tool pusher on the rig. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and then kind of made the jump over to consultant and eventually to superintendent at a different company. And then they decided that they wanted something a little bit slower paced um, from a superintendent and they came back to be a company man. So uh, that guy's name is Kevin and he has been a great asset just with his knowledge base. And I can lean on him quite a bit for help. Um, And then I also have a guy working for me, Dan, that is an ex drilling engineer, uh, but he's been, doing the rig consulting game for four or five years now. And he just prefers to do that, but he's a very smart guy that I can have engineering conversations with and um, help develop programs. So they're that's a awesome. good mix of that. So, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, I think it's there, like you said, there's different <laughs> paths for everyone and those that being out on location, every time I've visited a rig, you know, you get new appreciation for, how hard the work is out there from, you know, from the company man and the trailer to the, the tool pushers and everybody in between. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough 20 days. Um, yeah. When um, I can, first came to work at El Toro, I had to, uh, at the, the urging of my boss, he asked if I would work on the rig as a night company man. Um, and I had never done that in my career before that. It always been, me in the office, superintendent, and then company man making the decisions. So there were always always two levels of decisions before it made it to me, and that makes it makes decisions easier because you're not seeing that instant feedback, and it, it kind of makes the decision feel less heavy. But as soon as you get out there and you're the one making the call, 
uh, being the only person awake or the only supervisor, I should say, awake at that time. Um, it was kind of eerie at first and it yeah. made me question all the things that I wanted to do and thought I knew how to do. And, uh, I was glad to have Dan out there. He was my day guy. And we talked about all the operations that were coming up in the next 24 hours. And you learn a new appreciation for what it takes to logistically run a rig and ordering diesel and ordering water and telling the roughnecks what to do from time to time. And, yeah, just moving operations along. So, and keeping keeping location clean and organized. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, keeping it clean and organized, and worrying yeah. about everybody's safety, watching out for everybody. And yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a big job for sure. And I know some like when we've had like if you want to call it a postmortem or whatever after the fact or you know just reviewing like you know you talk to some of the guys on location or the, you know, we, when we, we have a drilling engineer consultant out as we're drilling on location and then go, yeah, you know, that part, um, we let you guys know about it. It was a little bit more stickier, you know, like we, we could have got stuck there, you know, we could have, we could have, you know, it could have turned out differently. And you go, like you're saying, you, you realize like there's this degree of separation where you're missing some of that detail and that nuance and like, this could have gone really, you know, we could have stuck a tool or something and uh, yeah. it could have gone a lot differently. So um, yeah. a lot of respect for, for the, for the guys in the field. Um, yeah. Cause as a, as an engineer in the office, you're like, well, the, the guidelines say pull 30,000 over and then like call your supervisor. Right. And then when you're in the field, you realize just how small 30,000 pounds is. And you're just like, well, if we pull, if we called it every 30,000 pound over, we wouldn't make it out of the hole. Right. And again, if we, if we go too hard and we go to 50, 60, 70,000 pounds over, you do run that risk of getting stuck, but there's, I don't know. It's just, it's a different game when you're on the rig floor, watching the dial bobbing up and down and right. like, was that 30 over? Or was that 50 over? Or was that, 20 over it's like i don't know so. so let's talk about that a little bit um let's talk about um you mentioned this earlier like speed of drilling and that like knocking your knocking your hole down versus and burning it down right to, to yeah. td versus like conditioning the hole um and then also the complications there of whether or not that that your, your vertical is going to slough any of those kinds of things. Like you might have sloughing in, or if you don't clean up the hole, can you kind of talk about all of that? Maybe break that down a little bit more, even like you talked about pulling tight. Yeah. Um, let's just chew on that for a little bit for the listeners. Okay. Um, so luckily where I drill in South Texas, South of San Antonio, about two hours Southwest of San Antonio. Um, it's pretty easy drilling. It's um, the rock is fairly competent. You're not losing returns. So you're not losing mud to the formation. Um, the rock isn't sloughing in like you were saying um, very often. It does happen. And uh, you also have the, the cuttings that you've just drilled that you have to deal with. So the typical problems that we come up with is usually we didn't clean the hole good enough before we decided to trip out. Um, so as you're drilling that hole, you're getting 
the majority of cuttings out by pumping fluid and transporting them to the surface. But in a horizontal well, that transfer of energy isn't a hundred percent efficient. Uh, you're still leaving some, some amount of debris behind. Um, the best explanation I've ever heard of it is was from a K and M class I took when I first started. And it, it's called saltation flow where you're, you essentially imagine your environment down there like a desert and you have this little pebble uh, of cutting coming along and it's moving up this well bore has to go a mile horizontally and then a mile back to the surface. Um, so every time it moves, it gets kicked up into the stream of moving fluid and it moves like a few inches down the hole and then it falls out of the fluid and then it gets kicked up again and it moves again. And you have these dunes that arise in your lateral and that's all well and good for, for drilling. You have a 70% clean hole. You're okay. But as soon as you start trying to pull your, your bit and your bottom hole assembly out, um, you've got essentially a piece of equipment that's the same size as the hole you just drilled and you have to get it out of the hole. And um, by doing that, it's kind of like a snow plow and you're pulling that cutting load with you. And if you didn't clean the hole up good enough, then uh, eventually it's going to pile up and it'll lock you in and get you stuck. So when I talk about overpull, that's when your weight indicator is reading more than it, it should just due to the calculated friction. And um, those limits are in place because typically you would see a steady increase in overpull over time. And then eventually those cuttings will pack off and you'll be stuck. So the best way to ensure a clean hole before you trip out is to essentially pump as fast as you can uh, without losing mud and spin the, the drill pipe as fast as you can, uh, preferably over 80 RPM um, or higher if you can get it. Um, and then as you're spinning that drill pipe, it kicks those cuttings up, gets them out of the hole, and uh, you see you see cuttings just unload from that hole for five, six, seven hours just coming out. And you wouldn't think that hole was that dirty, but there's a lot of material to get out of there before it's a clean hole for tripping. So, Right. And to be clear for anyone listening, that's not like what we're talking about a, a five inch hole, right? A six inch hole. Like, well, I don't know. What, yeah. what are you guys, what, what size bits are you guys uh, running? We drill an eight and three quarter inch hole. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know if I have a ruler or the sake of how big that is that's <laughs> kind of like that big <laughs> yeah yeah um, exactly so you're drilling with a bit that's that big and then you have drill pipe inside of that bit or that hole that's five and five inches so about that big yeah and uh so yeah it's i tend to forget about that size of hole that we're drilling and i imagine it to be much larger than it actually is like a eight and three quarter inch hole is actually a pretty large production hole in this industry right uh, at least onshore U.S. Um, whereas, like I've drilled in the in the Powder River and in the Haynesville, where you drill a, a six and a quarter hole, uh, which is much smaller. And uh, but either way, I mean it's two inch difference. Uh, but right. it, it doesn't seem like that much when you're just talking about <clears throat> talking about inches on the surface. But they act completely different downhole. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, uh, 
Um, are you guys having to set like intermediate down there or what, what's you get? I mean, you have surface <coughs> intermediate no, we just, and then you're, we, you're just, yeah, we just, um, they call it mono boring. Um, really it's just a, a surface string and then we drill vertically from our surface casing point, uh, down to kickoff point, start building the curve, land the curve out and drill usually a mile to a mile and a half. Uh, our reservoir is pretty shallow. It's at like 4,000, maybe 4,500 foot uh, TVD, uh, true vertical depth. So, uh-huh. um, What size rig are you guys having to run then? So I'd prefer to run a smaller rig just because day rates are astronomical right now. Right. Um, so for my next drilling program coming up this year, I want to get a telescoping double and um, it'd be about half the rig or half the loads that the other rigs we've been using, but we've actually been using a super spec rig or a, a triple or whatever you want to call it. It has three pumps and four generators. It's way overkill for what we do, but it's the rig that was available. So, right. And so you are, is, is the goal then, are you, are you maybe spend more time, more drilling days, but have your rate in half? Is that the, or are you hoping to keep the same? Yeah. So that's hard to drilling quantify. days. Yeah, that's hard to quantify. Um, the smaller rig, it's <clears throat> the downsides of it is it has less torque capability, it has less pump capability, and it has less hoisting capability. The hoisting capability is still above and beyond what we need it to be. I think it's 400,000 pounds. We typically pull 320, 325 coming out. And um, so that's not a problem. The torque is right at our limit i think it's able to do twenty five thousand foot pounds sustained and we've seen we've seen above twenty seven thousand foot pounds uh when we're really pushing on it at a mile and a half um so that'll limit us a little bit um so yeah there, there's probably some trade-off there like we may take a day or two longer to drill the well but we'll take two days less to move the rig so that's a pretty good trade-off especially because uh, at El Toro, we mostly drill single well pads and we'll just, we're kind of just proving up our acreage. We'll punch one over here and then we'll come over here and do one and then up over here and just trying to figure it out now. That wraps up today's Energy Builders podcast. Today's guest was Cody Godsell. If you want to connect with Cody, you can find him on LinkedIn and just search Cody Godsell. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do us a big favor and leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to or share with someone you think might enjoy this content. Thanks a lot for listening to Energy Builders. Energy Builders.